We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, thanks, John. As mentioned, we're going to be in Psalms tonight, uh, Psalm 35, then again, Psalm 36 afterwards. Psalm 35. Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Also, draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Uh, Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind. Let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery. And let the angel of the Lord pursue them. For without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly. And let his net that he has hidden catch himself. Into that very destruction let him fall. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. Fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good, to the sorrow of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. But in my adversity they rejoiced and gathered together. Attackers gathered against me, and I did not know it. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feasts they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from their loins. I'm sorry, from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. 
Let them not rejoice over me who has wrongfully, uh, who are wrongfully my enemies. Let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. They also opened their mouth wide against me and said, Aha! Aha! Our eyes have seen it. This you have seen, O Lord. Do not keep silence, O Lord. Do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my vindication, to my cause, my God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Ah, so we would have it. Let them not say, We have swallowed them up. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion. Who rejoice at my hurt, let them be clothed with shame and dishonor. Who exalt themselves against me, let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified. Who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant? And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Psalm 36. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Your mercy O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. O oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the, the foot of pride come against me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise.
Looks like our young people know where they're headed to work on their memory verses. leaves the rest of us for our Q&A time. So before we begin, let me just mention I had a very delightful time in the 5 o'clock hour. Uh, two of our young people came early to uh, have a little cl- baptism class with me. And uh, so they've finished uh, pretty much all the requirements. And uh, so we'll be setting a Sunday here soon to have our baptism. But it just was reflecting how it's a delight to be able to have that kind of class with young people and talk to them about the meaning of baptism, the theology of it, uh, the practical steps of it, uh, and just to see their enthusiasm about uh, testifying of their faith in the Lord and showing that they have already been uh, born from above and are just wanting to picture that to the church and tell folks that uh, they are among us as uh, as believers. Um, not too much better or a pastor than that, and so it was a delightful hour. I was going to do that this hour, but uh, because of things, uh, I said, uh, Jansen, uh, you go up there to uh, Hamburg, and I'll stay down here and take your slot this evening, so that meant that uh, we had to do the other thing one hour earlier, but here we are. So just a word of uh, testimony. Welcome to you if you are watching online. We're glad that you're doing that. Uh, We know that we had uh, a few this morning. I did get a comment back from somebody watching in Florida that they enjoyed the the meeting. And I think there was another family from Indiana watching, uh, or a couple, and um, folks that that we know from the past, and uh, we're glad that they were participating. And perhaps our friend Al and Pam are watching as well. If you are, uh, good evening to you. And uh, pray the Lord will give you a blessed week this week. Uh, we have an opportunity for Bible Q&A at this time, and uh, I'll do deal with one uh, kind of question that I had um, from maybe last week or the week before that, and then I have uh, some stuff I can look at from the book of Acts with you if, uh, if you guys run out of questions before we run out of time. And I also had another person ask me to uh, talk about the uh, book of life, uh, which I believe that I talked about before here, but I look back where my notes uh, were on that, and I printed out a fresh copy. Uh, that was back in the spring of 2019, which I couldn't believe because it felt to me like it was about maybe a year to two years ago, at most not five, but apparently time keeps marching on quicker than it feels. So uh, we can address that too if that's of interest uh, to anyone. But the uh, question that came up was somewhat uh, arose from uh, Jansen's doctrinal statement and uh, he was talking about indwelling and trying to explain what that means. And so I thought I would just bring a little bit of hopefully clarity to that. I also did a little study. Uh, I want to do a whole bunch more of this, but a little study of where the scriptures talk about the the Trinity being in the believer and the believer being in the members of the Trinity. This is a study that I was alerted to many years ago by our former pastor who, uh, when we began to speak with him about, uh, at one class, about indwelling, uh, 
you know, wanted us to pause and think, okay, now there's actually more to this than just the Spirit of God dwelling in the believer unidirectionally, but there's a, there's a real relationship here going on. And so we wrestled with that a little bit. I'll share some of those verses. But first of all, the definition of indwelling, the theological definition of indwelling is the permanent abode of the Spirit of God in all true believers. The, spirit, the permanent abode of the Spirit of God in all true believers. And it can be described under three headings. It's universal, it's bodily, and it's permanent. Okay, uh, It's universal, bodily, and permanent. Now, there is a, a question that has come up in our general, let's say, area of uh, the Christian vineyard, not the vineyard movement, okay? I'm talking about the parable of the Lord, <laughs> the vineyard. Our little corner of the world, or our little, as some people call it, our orbit. Uh, some in our orbit have said that there was no permanent indwelling in the Old Testament. There was only temporary or transient indwelling, and others have suggested that there is permanent indwelling in the Old Testament of theological necessity. I don't really necessarily need to get into all of that, although probably somebody will stick their hand up and ask that question after I've said all that, but... Uh, for now, we're going to define indwelling as the permanent abode of the Spirit of God and all true believers. That's what we understand it from the collection of all the texts. And uh, we'll look at some of those in just a moment. It's universal. Uh, every believer has that ministry, okay? It's not like we can say some Christians have it and some don't. That is a, another uh, area of debate. Uh, certainly not in our orbit do we ever debate that. Christians today, we all know, we all have the Spirit of God, but there are some who say, well, you don't have Him all, or you need to be able to exercise some gift like speaking in tongues to demonstrate that, or something uh, off, uh, off the uh, reservation, so to speak. Um, so it's universal. It's bodily, bodily, so it does have to do with our body, and this is where the kind of crux of the matter was with Jansen's uh, doctrinal statement. He's trying to explain how does this relate to uh, omnipresence and how is it different than omnipresence. Uh, and, you know, he was talking about a ministry of the Spirit, which is good and, and fine, um, but the ministry of the Spirit does happen locally. It's not limited to locally. It's not geographical and it's its emphasis, it's that, that in this relationship is really a relationship of ministry, that ministry which the Spirit of God has in the believer, he doesn't have in unbelievers or non-believers. So we can say that it's localized like the Spirit of God was localized in the, uh, well, let me say it this way, the Shekinah glory of God was localized in the te temple and the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> but we have to recognize, too, that if we think of it only in physical terms, we have shortchanged it because the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is also that he dwells in the spirit or with the spirit of the believer, not just the body. So it's bodily, but it's also uh, spiritual, if you will. So it's universal, it's bodily, and thirdly, it's permanent. So it, it's not a ministry of the Spirit of God where he comes and he goes and he comes and he decides to change his mind, as it were, and all of that. It's, it's permanent. Once God's Spirit takes up residence in a person and ministry in that person in their body and spirit, he does not leave, okay? So anybody who has the Spirit of Christ belongs to him, and anybody who does not have it does not belong to him, 
And uh, the belonging relationship is not an on-again, off-again situation. It says in Romans 8 9, but if you are, uh, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So uh, that will, you know, inevitably tie us back to the doctrine of eternal security and the uh, once for all nature of being born again, which we hold here. We don't have any problem with that doctrine, I trust. And uh, it's well accepted. So we don't have to make a huge argument for, uh, for that. But it's true that the Spirit of God's indwelling is permanent. Uh, if we uh, think about the uh, kind of triune uh, relationship of, the, of, the, of God with the believer, we can see from a number of texts that he is in the believer. And uh, the one I pointed to last time was in... Um, in uh, second, uh, not Second Corinthians, John, John seventeen. Uh, this was when I was just discussing the matter. John seventeen, verse twenty-three. This is in Jesus' prayer for all believers. Uh, he says, "I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, uh, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be made may may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me." Verse 22, in the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are. Then here it is, 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. So there's some kind of in-ness, any, uh, some kind of within relationship ministry that Jesus has with the believer and then the Father in, in Jesus, uh, we could say transitively, the Father in us as well. There was a verse, uh, Jackson, that you pointed out to me this morning, and I wanted to visit that one as well related to this. It's not totally unrelated, but I think there's a pause there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 16, uh, we see this verse. It says, uh, you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, I understand that. Well, you could understand that individually, I suppose. Um, it seems like there is a corporate kind of nature to that verse. And so I would hesitate to make that my strongest verse to uh, make a case for uh, the Father dwelling in the believer. And part of the reason for that is in Revelation 21.3. This is an oft-repeated statement in the Scripture, uh, promised from, oh, maybe Exodus all the way through in the New Covenant and then up until the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, verse 3, where John says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, that is the dwelling place of God, is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So it's talking about the corporate dwelling of God with his people in the future. This is the hope of the nation of Israel, and it's our hope as well, that uh, God will dwell with his people, and his people will dwell with him, and uh, he will be their God, and they will be his people. That, that mutual uh, connection between God and His people is really the hope of the kingdom and the hope of uh, of our future 
with uh, one another and with the Father in heaven and in the heavenly state, which is really the new heavens and the new earth. So this is not necessarily particularly about the doctrine of indwelling, but the doctrine of co-dwelling of the Father with his people. Now then, uh, we've already seen Christ in the believer in John chapter 17, but we can add to that in Colossians chapter 1. Christ in the believer, Colossians chapter 1. And we could profitably spend some more time on thinking, what does this mean, this idea that the members of the Trinity are in us? That word in is a very flexible kind of preposition, and it has a lot of nuance to it. Uh, Colossians 1.27 says, To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Here's the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Christ dwells in in us, uh, and that's actually reminding me of another verse that I didn't have written down, but let's see, it's either in Ephesians 3, yeah, it's Ephesians 3.17, if you look there, Paul's prayer is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ. There's an old hymn that has that, those words in it, wonderful hymn. I don't know if you know that song, but uh, we, we had it here many years ago. It's helpful to remember this verse with that hymn. So the prayer is that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. It's the idea of Christ being at home as opposed to that idea of feeling kind of out of place, you know what I mean, or a stranger, he's at home in your life, in your heart. So we could add that under the heading of Christ in the believer. But then, of course, there's the Spirit of God dwelling in the believer. And uh, we have the uh, verse in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 6.19 that we can use for that. 1 Corinthians 6.19. This would also support the bodily aspect that we talked about a moment ago. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Okay, so this, this has got to be speaking in my mind individually to the believer that your body is the temple because it's talking about the certain kind of sin that can be done with your temple. Uh, and you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God. So the, the instruments of your life on this earth, your body, must be used in a way that honors Jesus Christ. Now there's another verse that sometimes is used in uh, this connection. It's 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16, a verse that I think is more, probably more usually than not, it's misunderstood and the fact that it's misunderstood in, in the wrong direction means that the right meaning of it is just overlooked. So 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 
And so you read that in English and you say immediately, well, it sounds just like 1 Corinthians 6.19, indwelling, just put it in that pigeonhole there, into that bucket. But the, the real answer is no, it doesn't go in that bucket because this is talking about corporate indwelling. Okay, this you is plural. He doesn't just exist. He's not just saying it's that he uh, is in you singularly or individually, but as a church. He's talking about building the church of God all the way here through uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and following. Paul and Paulus planting, watering. God gave the increase. God uh, wants us to build properly on the foundation that he has laid, which is Christ Jesus and uh, wood, hay, and stubble versus gold, silver, and precious stones. You're familiar with that. And so he's talking about building the church. And you all are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Altogether, plural. Okay, so it's not precisely the same as individual indwelling that we've been talking about. However, we could say, I could have a whole additional table here and just put in the church and see about God and the and the Spirit and Christ residing in or taking up a dwelling in the church. This connects also to what Peter wrote, that God is building you up into a holy temple to the Lord, that each of you are like, um, uh, like bricks in a church, but you're a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. All right? So what does that mean for Fellowship Bible Church? We are a dwelling place of God corporately through the Spirit. And when we meet together is especially that time when the Spirit of God is in, 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 in us, with us. You know? And, of course, we can't say that he just poof disappears into thin air when we scatter to our own places. We're taking him with us, so to speak. And he is in the church corporately as we gather, minister together, and speak with one another and all of that. But it just it's a whole doctrine that I think I should spend a little more time developing my understanding of, that the Spirit of God dwells in the church. He doesn't dwell in the Old Testament temple. There is none now. The tabernacle's gone. Um, the Ark of the Covenant is no more, we think. <laughs> You know, we have a, conspiracy theories about that. But, uh, you know, the way the Spirit of God works in the world now is in the church. And what happens when the church goes to heaven? Well, some, some real important ministry of the Spirit of God in his church is gone. And so it is an important thing for us to keep in mind. And also why our churches need to be holy. You know, we need to be holy. And as much as we possibly can, following God's word, because he's living with us and doesn't want to be sullied, just like in our individual lives. But the believer is also in the reverse direction, in the Father and in Christ and in the Spirit. First <clears throat> John uh, 2, 24. Let's go there. 1 John 2.24 Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. So 
So we have, we have the believer abiding in the Son and we have the believer abiding in the Father. One more about the Son. You won't be surprised when you hear me start reading this one. In John 15, verse 2, every branch in me. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. See, there's that two-directional thing again. I abide in, in him and he abides in me. So there's kind of mutual interdwelling, if you will, or indwelling. The mutuality of that is an interesting notion and important. It's speaking of a relational thing. I and me and I, I, I and me, I and you and you and me. I'll get my pronouns here correct one way or the other. Uh, abide. What does it mean to abide, by the way? Abide. Probably the best and simplest understanding that I have had of the idea of abiding is simply that abiding means believing. Abiding to con- is really, abide is kind of, kind of has the idea of continuing to believe, persevering belief. So abiding, believing, mutual interdwelling, he is uh, in me and I in him. And if so, then that person bears much fruit, for without me, you can do nothing. This uh, outstrips our ability um, um, to really describe with words. It outstrips our ability to express in terms of spatial relationships. We run out of words because one thing can't be in another thing and that thing be inside of that thing. You know what I mean? It's like there's a um, this mutuality that's very difficult to express. And then... Um, you know, we have believers. Uh, I've got myself uh, turned around here with my notes as far as the verses, but we also can find some texts that talk about us in, uh, in the Spirit, in the Spirit, but then you have to ask yourself, what does in mean? Is that the same kind of mutual interdwelling, or, or is this being in the Spirit like... John, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Remember that verse in Revelation? Well, that, that, the word in there doesn't exactly mean the same thing that we're talking about here, I think. Uh, in the Spirit is, you know, he was caught up in the state of having a vision. Uh, that's over in Revelation 1. We can just read it. And not uh, like indwelling in the Spirit or something like that. <clears throat> Revelation 1. Uh, let's see. It says, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. So it's almost like he's saying the Spirit of God was working on him in such a way that he was in this this mode or this uh, way of being 
uh, and it was able to receive revelation from God in that state. So I'll add to this list that I've given you here and maybe share that with you sometime or publish that. But uh, probably the main point of this is just to remind ourselves that we're talking about a universal, permanent abode of the Spirit of God with the believer. And I think that's all I need to say about that. All right, questions. Other questions? You have, t- you have time now. We do have a microphone that will roam to where you are if you would like to use that. Drew Nelson. I have a random or science question. Random science question, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. So the question has to do with the, uh, with our understanding of how there can be genetic variation or genetic richness in the uh, genome of just two dogs, the pair of dogs that went onto the ark. Right. I think that's kind of a good summary of the question. So I don't know much about uh, genetics per se, except, you know, for those experiments on the peas that we did in biology class or whatever. Do you remember that? Uh, what was that guy's name? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, it seems very plausible to me that in because the genome of any creature is so vast, I mean, we have no idea how vast it is. In, in, I mean, I, I can't even like give a number to it, but I'm just imagining these, these sequences that you find in the DNA uh, are a programming language in essence. And that programming language, it appears to me, contains vast amounts of information, much of it unexpressed in the particular uh, animal or person that has that, Yet in it is encoded possibilities for all kinds of heights and widths and uh, uh, colors and shades of skin and uh, all of that type of hair, straight and curly and everything like that. So I think it's easily plausible that in the early generations of a particular kind of animal, like a dog kind or a horse kind or a cat kind, that you could have in that genome all of the different variations encoded in such a way that with selective breeding, whether done by animal husbandry experts or done, could we say, accidentally in nature with uh, Mr. and Mrs. getting together of various sorts, that you're going to be able to express uh, different parts of that genome. And this is one of the reasons why it's so incredibly impossible to believe that time and chance and random mutations created this genome that we're looking at. It simply expresses too much intelligent information. In fact, the expression of any intelligent information 
even of a smallest sort, would make it impossible to believe that a genome came about accidentally by time, chance, and uh, random mutations. Uh, but because the amount of information, it's almost as if God said, I want to make sure that they understand this is not chance. And he put in so much that it became impossible, it becomes impossible to believe that it's just random chance, like a lot of people do. Time is not a God. Time is not a God which solves all statistical problems, okay? God is God. God uses time. God created time. God placed us in time, but he did not, uh, you know, it's not a situation where there's just an evolutionary randomness to it. Now, let me add, too, you see the you see examples of this even in the human race. <clears throat> Have you seen uh, parents, a pair of parents who've had a baby of the opposite color skin, right? I can't remember which way it is that I've seen it, but two white parents have a, a very dark-skinned baby or dark-skinned parents have a very light-skinned. Yes, yeah, so there's fraternal twins that are dark and light and that blows people's minds, but what that it actually clearly demonstrates that the genetic information for that is encoded commonly across all uh, all humans. Now, I suspect that as you get like um, farther down the tree, the family tree, and more kind of specialized, we, we can see this happen with very inbred populations or families you get very difficult situations that come up because they have mutations in the same locations and they begin to express themselves on, from that genome. But um, it's a remarkable thing that we have still the level of variation that we have today after so many generations. But just imagine with all that variation what it would have been like if you, you rewind 60 or 100 generations or I don't know how many generations, maybe a thousand generations or something, whatever it is. Uh, and rewind all the way back there to think about the genetic information that God originally programmed in with no errors, no bugs, no random mutations, no cancers, no anything, just perfect right off the printing press from God. That's amazing. So I think it's, it, it's not hard for me to believe that all that variation was contained within just an original pair of a certain kind of animal. We should also note that uh, kind in Genesis, that word kind is not exactly lined up with our word for species. It's a little broader than our species. But uh, so you can have kind of a wider variety. You know, when you think of horses, you probably think of, you know, horses and zebras and different things kind of as different things, but they're really very similar, very similar things. All right, I trust that was a sufficient answer for that question. Does anybody else have one? John always has an interesting question. And sorry, Pastor, I didn't mean to get you to you this early because sometimes I ask off-the-wall questions that are difficult. Uh, but <laughs> Off the uh, wall. <laughs> maybe I use that term, phrase incorrectly, but anyway. Uh, so I had a question that comes from, you know, we've been going through a series through First John in the Sunday School Hour with the teens, and I've been using some of your materials. Mm -hmm. My question isn't actually about First John, but more 
the notes I've been going through that I've been using your notes and a couple other materials. And from time to time, though, reference Greek and, you know, what exactly are the tenses of the verbs and all those types of things. And I, I, I'll admit I look at that and my eyes kind of glaze over. And as a layman, short of learning Greek, I'm wondering how to navigate those types of discussions, either in your notes or someone else's notes, and how I can actually make that useful. Because I wasn't really sure, you know, when it comes to me present, representing that, I don't know. I know there's tenses in Greek and there's more than there are in English, but my knowledge completely stops there and goes no further. Okay, um, so how does a Bible teacher who doesn't know Greek use Greek? Well, very carefully. Uh, so one of the, I'll say a pitfall. So one of the things that I tell my students when I'm teaching either Greek or Hebrew is Greek and Hebrew will not solve all of your theological problems. They just will not. Uh, you know, scholars uh, who are very adept at the languages, far more adept than I am, have arguments about what this or that means. That being said, there are a number of things that are clear to, to a lot of scholars, especially in, in um, conservative circles, that, for instance, when you have a present tense verb in Greek, that one of its com that the common uses of that is a habitual uh, or pattern of life present tense. So in the case of 1 John chapter 3, for example, uh, the one who's been born again or born from above does not sin, present tense, meaning does not continue to live a pattern of sin, does not have a habit of life of sin, and it, so that it's not saying that you never sin again, otherwise you're in violation of 1 John 1, 8 and 10, right? The person who says he has no sin or has not sinned is a liar and the truth of God is not in him. And so that tense helps to clarify that potential conundrum that you'd get in by saying, wait a minute, I have sinned, but now it says I'm not sinning. Well, it means that your pattern of life is one of righteousness. It's not one of, of ongoing, unchecked, unrepentant sin. More specifically, John, to your question about how does a layman, so to speak, use Greek, um, I think you look at the material of, well, in this case, the, t the commentaries you're looking at, your pastor, um, you know, and in this case, I've written some notes for you, but you, you have to, how can I say it? You almost have to trust that you're getting sound information from the sources that you have. And I'll give you an example I've given, you, I've given you an example pro or for that, but I'll give you an example against that. Um, but before I do that, let me just say this. It, it does require some diligence on your part not to say, okay, I've read this one guy in this area. You probably should, unless he's a reliable source, like a good conservative, well-studied Greek scholar that you know and trust, and you say, okay, I found his material decent before, I'm going to run with it. But before you come to that point, you should probably say, look, I'm going to look at this guy and this commentary and this and see if I can find a common thread. If I cannot, 
then I might just not say anything about it. But if I can, then I can be justified to say to the students, my, my reading has indicated that there is a common understanding among Christian theologians that this verb here is in the perfect tense, say, and in that perfect tense, it means that there has been an event that has occurred with ongoing results. So, again, in 1 John chapter 2, we know presently that we have come to know him, perfect tense, if we keep his commandments. Okay, in English, that might be translated simply this way. We know that we know him if we keep his commandments. But in Greek, it says, we presently know that we have come to know him, perfect tense, if we keep his commandments. And there's broad uh, agreement that that is the meaning of those two tenses used differently on the same verb to know in English in that verse. Um, So if you have that kind of broad agreement, I think you're good to run with it. If you don't, then you need to hold with some tentativeness your uh, uh, understanding until you come to a better understanding of what's going on with the the Greek text. The danger of having Bible study tools is that they'll tell you what the tense is, and without having spent even one semester in Greek, which is crucial if you're going to properly understand it, one or two semesters minimally, in which your professor gives you some cautions and caveats and tells you to be careful, and you understand that. If you just, you know, say, hey, my Bible software says it's uh, whatever, 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 and that means this and this and this, but you don't even understand what you're talking about. My recommendation is don't say things that you don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, so a, an example against. Um, very often it was uh, taught that the aorist tense in Greek is a once-for-all tense. So that a verse like Romans chapter 12, uh, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That present verb is in the aorist tense. Because of that, some taught over the years that that means that you must come to a a, a one-time second work of grace at which you give yourself and sacrifice to the Lord sometime after your salvation, and then ever after that, that's done. That second work of grace is finished because that's a aorist tense, they said, that is a one-time action, a point of action at one particular time. That understanding has been eclipsed by uh, much more careful linguistic research on the Greek language so that no more would I be able to say what I just said as if it were true. I would never get up here on a Sunday morning and preach that that's a second work of grace or an act that you have to do one time and once it's done, it's over. I would be able to preach that verse more like this. Folks, the scripture tells us in Romans 12.1 that we are to give our lives as a living sacrifice for God. That's an ongoing, ever-evaluating uh, you know, thing we have to introspect on. It's something that we look at and we say, am I living like that right now? 
It's given in the aorist tense, which is the least significant exegetical tense in the New Testament. As it doesn't it doesn't describe that it's one time for sure. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Uh, it's just simply giving a general command. You see the difference now? You've built, if you believe that one way in the aorist tense, you've built up a system of theology of the second work of grace and all of that based on that, what turned out to be faulty understanding of the Greek language. So I... Uh, of course, don't endorse that faulty understanding, and I encourage us to be careful about our, you know, use of, of, uh, of Greek if we don't know it. Even if we do know it, we shouldn't. Now, I've had probably, I don't know, two, four, probably eight to ten semesters of stuff in Greek, and probably, I don't know, as many more than that in Hebrew. And I'm nowhere near where I'd like to be in understanding the languages. Um, so best behooves us to be humble about our use of those tools. Um, but let me also hasten to add this, that this doesn't mean that it's impossible for you, the layperson, to understand your Bible. And here's why. Because translators have done a tremendous service to the church of God by translating the Bible accurately into the English language or what other Spanish and other languages as well, but let's just say English, so that when you read it, you are getting an accurate rendition of what it means. You might not be getting all of the nuance and the detail that you'd love to be able to get if you knew the original language and were just reading the Greek text from your you know, Greek New Testament, but you are getting an accurate understanding of God's Word. One way that we can bolster our confidence in this is by reflecting on how the apostles used their Old Testament in the New Testament. When they used the uh, Old Testament in the New Testament, many of them used what's called the Septuagint or Septuagint, the LXX, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. They used it, they quoted it, they quoted it as authoritative and there's some difficulties when we see what they quoted and what the Hebrew text that we have in our hands says. We say, man, I'm scratching my head and saying, how did that Greek translation come from that Hebrew text? And so we'll leave that with the, you know, the super brains that work on that stuff. But they used their translation and confidently used it. They, didn't, they, they said it's the word of God. This is what God said. And so we can do the same thing even though we are removed from the original by one language, okay? By the way, don't let people, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, befuddle you <clears throat> or gaslight you, let's say, into believing that you don't have God's word. Oh, it, it was changed so many times over the years and all that sort of stuff. Where's the evidence for that? Tell them to bring the receipts before they start telling you that junk because that's what it is. It's junk. We have original, basically original manuscripts. We don't have the original manuscripts, but we have the text from the original manuscripts. We have thousands and thousands of manuscripts far better than any ancient document by an order of magnitude minimally. And so we can have great confidence that we have access to the original Greek text and translators of all of your Bibles 
I mean, everyone that anybody carries in here, whether it's King James, New King James, NASB, ESV, LSB, NET, NIV, which ones haven't I said yet? Christian Standard Bible. All of those uh, scholars that have translated the Bible are going right to those Greek texts and translating it into English. So we are only one step removed from the original language. No reason for us to fret that we don't have God's word. We can say, that's God's word. Okay? And we understand that there's translation issues and all that. If only we grew up in a nation where we had to speak two or three languages, we would have no problem with this at all. People in multilingual contexts understand this intuitively. Yes, there's issues of translating this language to that. And that's why we are benefited by having skilled Bible teachers and preachers who can handle some of that material and reduce it down and bring it on, a, say, a Sunday morning or a Sunday night so that we can understand it. Okay? Might have time for one more. You have one, Jackson? Oh, no, you're just holding the uh, microphone. <laughs> He's trying to get somebody to use this microphone here again. <laughs> Nobody else? All right. Just remember that uh, the Scripture tells us that uh, this is a different, different matter, another question that uh, came up. Remember that the Scripture tells us that Jesus is not only Lord, He's not only Savior, but He's also Judge. And God has appointed a day in which every man will have a visitation with Jesus and will give an account of his life. For believers, we're told that we will give an account of the things done in the body, whether good or ill, for unbelievers, they will give an account of their works and they will be found wanting because they have not trusted in Christ. That judgment uh, maybe should be an um, anxiety-causing uh, situation. I mean, this is not just like a final exam. This is not a GRE. <laughs> this is not a, uh, a uh, what do we call it? qualifying exam for PhD students? You know, this is not your, uh, your final test to become a, a pilot. This is the test of life, as it were, the test of your life. And um, so it ought to give us some pause to deal with it uh, carefully. That matter of judgment, Romans 14, 2 Corinthians uh, 5, and elsewhere, Acts chapter 17. God's appointed him judge. He's given judgment over to the Son of Man, John chapter 5. <clears throat> knowing that and you know, is sobering and knowing that we have a faithful high priest who's able to feel our infirmities because he was touched like we are with all these temptations, we can have a level of confidence. But we ought to know that what we do here does, have a, does make a difference. It is significant to our eternal judgment and reward. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege to look at these matters tonight, matters uh, about the, the enormity of the wisdom in creation that you have displayed and about indwelling and about this matter of how to use the original languages and the confidence we can have that we have your word. I pray that's been helpful. Give us caution, Lord, as we handle your word. Uh, above all, because we know that those who teach will have a stricter judgment. Those of us who um, stand up in the pulpit 
sit in front of the classroom and teach and even teach our children. We're responsible to handle the Word of God accurately, and I pray that we will. And Lord, I pray that uh, as each of us thinks about what comes in our future, as we consider being judged by you, some because of unbelief, and others of us, us of Christians, uh, in our belief yet still truly evaluated in a meaningful evaluation and We need to be careful about how we conduct our affairs, our lives here, so that we might find a very favorable judgment in that regard with our reward, as it were, awaiting. Thank you for these people, these dear ones. Strengthen them, those online as well. Take us from here safely in Jesus' name. Amen.